0: Listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome back. At least I hope you're back. Honestly, after last week's show, I haven't gotten enough feedback to know whether or not that level of personal, you know, rawness or openness or whatever it was. I don't know whether that, maybe that drove some people away. Uh, you know, maybe, that's, maybe that's too much for somebody to handle. I didn't get any, I didn't get the normal email feedback that I would get that was sort of telling me like, oh, no, we're in good shape or, oh, that was a little hairy or whatever. So I hope you're okay out there. I hope you can handle, you know, I hope you can handle me. I'm, 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 I mean, I'm just a human being and uh as you know the conceit of this show is that i'm trying to become a more human being and so i interview all these really interesting people who have different takes on life and different skills and expertises and i try to get them to tell me stuff that i can use to make myself better to thereby i ask them to humanize me and hopefully by overhearing maybe they humanize you too or maybe we're all humanizing each other but uh this week I'm kind of excited because I have a conversation this week with James Croft, who is the outreach director for the Ethical Society of St. Louis. And as you will discover, the ethical societies are maybe the oldest, most venerable humanist organizations in the country, um if not the world, I don't know. I just know that In some ways, they have a kind of an old world charm to them in terms of their title. But people like James are really trying hard to make them relevant and and to make them the kind of communities that I'm always talking about on this show. And that's one of the reasons, like, I I promised last year that we would do more in terms of providing practical community building resources to people that were trying to do that. And, uh, And I fell down. And like, I'm, I haven't given up. I've got some ideas. I'm going to bring back some stuff that I was going to try to do and, and execute it in this year better. But uh, you could consider this show like an early installment of that kind of stuff because James is going to talk about one aspect of community building that I don't think gets much play out there in the world. And that is how we engage with the rest of the world in a kind of an official way or how we carry the banner of secular goodness out there to the rest of the world. And, uh, I think you'll like James. I mean, he's got a cool voice. He's got a cool story. Um, I like him and, uh, and, and that'll probably come through. Um, so there, so the, so, so the, the conversation with James Croft is coming up in just a moment, but in the meantime, I do have a recommendation for you, a film recommendation. And, it's a film that you, you may have heard of, but I bet you most of us haven't seen it because it's doggone long and it's black and white and that's a little scary for some of us. It's a movie called Roma and it's made by a director I really like, a writer-director I really like, named Alfonso Cuaron. And he's made some movies that I really liked. He made a, a, a very actiony kind of movie called Children of Men a while back. And uh, and he made another movie called Itumama Tambien, which was a a very cool movie too. Um, This movie is different though. It's a very personal movie about basically the home in which he grew up at the time in Mexico in the 70s, at the time when his father was leaving the family and their housekeeper um, got pregnant. And it is just... A very, it's it's funny. It's set against these big historical events, like a, a massacre that took place in Mexico City, a lot of political strife and turmoil. Um, but it's it's a very personal f- film, a very slow film, and it, it's funny because like it's not something didactic where you're like you'll learn so much. And this it's a, it's a guide to how to have a good family. It, it's it's an ode to domestic love, and uh, and I watched it. And I didn't feel like it told me anything that I should do. I felt like it was something for me to celebrate. Like I was like, this happened to this family. And I'm so happy for him, for Alfonso. I'm so happy for this family, um, that they loved each other in this particular way, in this particular place and time. And, you know, I often talk about vicarious joy. And I think this movie is an opportunity for some vicarious joy. And and by the way, some vicarious anxiety and some vicarious pain and some vicarious fear at the same time. I mean, it's, a, it's a very interesting movie. It takes you up, down, and all around. Um, it's beautifully shot. It's an, I mean, it's a work of art. And I think it'll probably stand as a work of art. You can find it on Netflix right now. That's where I watched it with Marty. And uh, yeah. All right, at the end of the show, where I would normally have on the outro, I want you to stick around for the outro because in the outro where I would normally have my Robert Ingersoll quote, I've got a song for you, a song that a friend of mine sent me, and I think you'll really, really like it. It is very much in keeping with um, the spirit of this show. It's, it's, it's one of the most spirit of the show songs I've ever heard. And so, yeah, catch on the backside, and we're going to play this song that I think you'll dig. But for now, I think you'll dig my conversation with James Croft. So here we go. So you're getting married?
1: Yes, I'm getting married in like two weeks and a bit i will be a married man colton my fiance is sitting in the living room right now with his dog trying to oh relax goodness. on the couch that's so i you
0: know it's funny like i don't know if it's the same like because what are you like 30 something i am 35 i'll be 36 in january right. i got married when i was like 24. like you're you're much more of an adult than i was but still i, I remember the weeks leading up to my wedding. I thought that that was the only thing that was happening in the world. It was so exciting. I just, like, that was all we talked about. It's
1: a bit overwhelming. It's been an extremely intense six months of my life. In August, my father died. And then a few weeks after that, I was engaged. And then a few months after that, I'm getting married. So it's been a very, very intense period in my life. But this is just a really joyful experience. It's wonderful to be planning a wedding with someone who really understands you and who you know very deeply, but also who has skills in areas that you totally don't have. Now, now are you getting married at the Ethical Society? Actually not. I did just do a wedding this past weekend for two of our members at the Ethical Society, but we decided that we wanted a small wedding in our own home with only our family. Part of the reason is that I have family in well four different countries, including me. My sister's in Holland, my brother's in Ireland, my mother's in England. And so it's rare that my brother, my sister, and I, and my mom are all in the same country together let alone all of them in st louis together and since they had planned to come to st louis in december anyway we decided to take the opportunity that they all being together to to get married so we're doing something small with colton's immediate family my immediate family and in our own home and it's going to be kind of magical i think so
0: you're bringing these your family and they're all coming to st louis which is where you live and where you are one of the leaders of the ethical society. And have, have all your family been to St. Louis before? Or will this
1: for some of them be the
0: first time they've been in that city?
1: All my family have been here before. I okay. don't think all of them have been here together at the same time. The, the reason why I was asking is because I'm realizing
0: S- St. Louis is on one level just another Midwestern city but on another level it feels like it is ground zero for something cuz like all these things keep happening in and around st louis protests incidents do you know do you feel like you're do you feel like there's a lot going on there cuz i feel like you're in the news all the time these days
1: yes i feel like there is a lot going on here i mean i moved to st louis to work with the ethical society in june of 2014 So I was at the time I was studying in Boston, finishing up my doctorate. I had decided that I didn't want to pursue academic philosophy, at least immediately, that I wanted to work within a community and to explore humanist values in a community. And I had learned about the existence of ethical societies, which are humanist congregations, so kind of like churches just without God or traditional religion in them. And I trained to become a leader, which is our term for clergy, and I was asked to go to St. Louis to complete the training process, which involves a one-year sort of apprenticeship at an ethical society. And so I ended up traveling from Boston, Massachusetts to St. Louis, Missouri for what I thought might just be one year. There's no huge plan in my mind to stay necessarily for any longer than that. And it was a big change, and it was a bit of a leap of faith if you will because I'd never really been to St. Louis before I started considering this move I didn't know much about that part of the country I remember telling my friends in Boston that I was moving to St. Louis and they responded as if I told them like my beloved pet had died you know in their Boston accents they they said oh I'm so sorry as if something terrible had happened to me because many people on the coast just don't really think about moving to the Midwest or some people think Missouri is also in the South. So it's kind of interestingly located for that. But St. Louis in particular has a bad rep. Yes. Yeah. People think of it as very, very dangerous and not as a good city. Um, And I didn't know a huge amount about that because one of the things about not being an American is that you don't you know have a built-in concept of all these different american cities necessarily so i didn't really cu- come at it with with that perspective already in my head but i just didn't really know anything about it except that it was much smaller than boston which itself is much smaller than london which is where i grew up to me boston felt like a little bit of a small town and so i was nervous about whether i would enjoy the move and whether i would find people like me out there or whether I'd like the work because of course I'd never actually worked in capacity of sort of clergy. I was training to do that, but I didn't know that I would like it. So there was a lot of unknowns. And I moved to St. Louis in June of 2014. In August of 2014, Mike Brown was killed. And those protests that became an international news story kicked off immediately when basically right after I arrived in the city, that all began. And I felt being someone training to be a leader at something called the Ethical Society of St. Louis, that it would not be right if our community didn't have some presence in those protests. And so I started to attend meetings with local area clergy who were planning responses to Mike Brown's shooting and to the protests that had been happening since. I went on I think, the first national march in Ferguson and various other uh, actions that happened down there. And what, a through weird those, what a weird yeah. introduction. It was very strange in many ways. I mean, you don't have context for it, right?
2: Like, you don't know that.
0: No. At that time, you couldn't have known much of the history of racial strife in St. Louis. Yeah, maybe in the United States even. I mean, there must have been a really, like, the learning curve must have been pretty steep.
1: Yeah, it was basically vertical with a couple of overhangs along the way. I think that it was a kind of it was a rude awakening, really. It, I learned a lot, and I became very disillusioned through the process. And I mean that both in the positive and the negative senses. It was a very eye-opening experience because I was fairly naive, I think, about the amount of racism in American society and particularly the way that racism is baked into American institutions, I think I was naive about that. Maybe idealistic or just ignorant is a better word. Um, I didn't appreciate the extent to which people of color and African Americans in particular are locked out of and treated poorly by almost every segment of civil society. And being involved in some aspects of the Ferguson uprising, as the activists here now call it, really taught me very quickly that I had an awful lot to learn about that. And this city was the epicenter for, I think, the beginning of a new phase of the struggle for not just racial equality, but liberty for all people of color. And that—that's
0: a very, it's a very optimistic way of looking at it because that was two thousand what fourteen? Yes. And two years later, you know, we have one of the most racially charged elections in our history. And two years on from that, it feels like it—it it doesn't feel—it doesn't feel like we've entered into a glorious new era of racial um, reconciliation.
1: That's right. We definitely haven't no glorious new era of racial reconciliation. But I think that looked at from the right angle, what happened with the election of 2016 can be seen as part of the same trajectory. I think that race became salient in the political sphere in the United States in a way that it wasn't so explicitly salient before. And as they always do, right-wing demagogues leapt Onto that as an opportunity to mobilize white people who were nervous, afraid, anxious about the loss of social privileges and supremacy, and made that into a political force. I mean, I think that the Republican Party has been racist for a very long time, and some people would say the Democratic Party too, but the sort of explicit racism that was made a plank of Trump's campaign and that has continued to be a plank of his campaign, the explicit mobilization of negative racial stereotypes in order to motivate certain groups of people to vote in a particular way is, I think, something that we hadn't seen so much, at least in my lifetime. And I think is in some sense a reaction to activists in St. Louis and across the country talking more openly and more vigorously about race in a more urgent way. So I kind of see it it as part of the same process of race becoming very salient, which has positive aspects in that more and more people, including more and more white people, are understanding how racially iniquitous American society is, but also more and more almost exclusively white people are afraid of what addressing that might actually mean for them. And therefore, are being encouraged to vote in a way which is essentially an attempt to reinforce their racial hegemony. And now so, you, I, you, th-
0: you you show up there, and and you're you're in that conversation, but like you're part of this congregation. Is your congregation? I I, I know no congregation is monolithic, but I would think like a secular, you know, basically a humanist congregation. Um, I mean. I, is it a conflict within your congregation like not conflict but like is it a conversation that like people are in different spaces within the congregation or are you guys fairly unified in your approach to like how we how do how do we respond to ferguson or how do we respond to this stuff
1: yeah it it's certainly the case that it was a conversation that we had and are continuing to have within The Ethical Society of St. Louis. And people are in different places in terms of their understanding of racial justice, comfort with contemporary social justice language, appreciation of the challenges that people of color face. You know, there are in every congregation people at different places in their journey. And I see that it's one of the roles of communities like ours to help people better understand the struggles that other people in society face so that we can work together to try and overcome them yeah you know it's it's funny when i was in the church um
0: it wasn't it was a weird conversation sometimes but at least like that was a place where people felt like we're supposed to try to figure out how we relate to you know people different than ourselves i think a lot of times secular folk if they if they're not part of a congregation they're like there's really no sort of safe venue to have those conversations where there are some rules um, of engagement that keep it civil.
1: I totally agree. I think that that's one of the major problems with secular society is that it hasn't built spaces, sort of analogs to religious communities where the purpose of them is partly to have these sorts of conversations and to do this sort of education. And I think that people increasingly understand that the ethical society can be a place for those sorts of conversations. It's a community founded on the fundamental principle that human beings are equal in dignity and worth. And it makes sense then that we would fight for the full participation and freedom of people of color in our society because we are supposed to be promoting their equal dignity and worth in a society that doesn't recognize it and so it sort of makes sense that we could be a place to do that there aren't really many non-traditionally religious spaces which seem to be well set up to do that work no no it's funny we're trying to crank
0: one up here in cincinnati um some friends of mine and i are starting to plot and we got together and you know we're, we're sort of talking about the Rammers and there's this one young woman who's part of our, our crew. And she said, look, I think you just need to be really explicit that this is going to be about love. Like that we're going to pursue love. Like love is this word that sort of we, you know, we've sort of seeded, um or let go of. And she was like, I really want, like, I'm really interested in creating it about love. And, People that want to pursue love should be part of it because she felt like that would, in one sense, like, and I think about this race conversation, it sort of creates the parameter of, okay, we're not coming in here cold. Like, everybody's committed to trying to foster loving relationships. Now, let's talk about race in the light of that overall commitment.
1: Yes. And that makes it-
0: Please. No, no, and, I, and what made me think of it, what I thought of as soon as she said that was I thought about a conversation you and I had a few months ago where you were talking about, um, I think it was Felix Adler?
1: Yes, the founder of the first Ethical Society. And, and kind of his shtick was,
0: I don't really want to talk about what you believe in. Like, I don't care. You can believe anything you want if you're part of this thing. It's about what you're committed to. Um, did I get that right?
1: Yes. It is pretty much that. The the motto that we have is deed before creed. So it's more about how we treat each other and how we choose to act in this life than about what we believe about God or religion or about the afterlife and stuff like that. And, and I kind of don't feel like I want to have a conversation
0: about race with anybody who, in some sense, like, does, I mean... I don't. I don't enjoy that conversation unless that person sort of has an a priori commitment to loving relationships or to a harmonious world or to the dignity of every human being. Like there needs to be some kind of like moral grounding, so that like we can go at race in 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 the light of that goal. And sometimes right. I feel like that's one of the problems about the conversation that happens in this country is, is that there isn't an explicit commitment. To other people's well being. There might be a commitment to fairness or equality, but there isn't a commitment to, like, I really want to be, I really want to f- really see people thrive.
1: I think that's right. I think it is very, very difficult to be any oppressed person and to at the same time try and live with and fight against your oppression and still hold the humanity of your oppressors in your mind as well. I think that's very, very difficult to do. And I think that the difficulty of that often makes spaces which talk about racism or homophobia or sexism, spaces that can be dominated by anger or antipathy, they can become unpleasant spaces to be in. And I think that those, it's really important that people have spaces where they can express their anger. I know as a gay man, you know, I need times where I can be like, uh, I can swear and be annoyed at everybody and and just not worry about what I'm saying or who I'm offending. I definitely need spaces like that. But I think in order to do the long-term very difficult work of educating people and helping people understand and bringing people from where they are now to where you'd like them to be in terms of their understanding of different injustices in the world, those places actually need to be motivated by some sort of ethic of care and kindness so that people are presumed to be decent when they come into the space. And even when they say things that are misinformed and even hurtful, there's an appreciation that they probably didn't intend to be hurtful, and so we can continue to be in community with them and help them understand. I'm very influenced in my approach to this sort of thing by some of my gay rights work that I did early after coming out of the closet myself which was with an organization called Speak Out Boston. And their whole idea was that they sent LGBTQIA plus people to schools, businesses, uh, universities, nonprofits, anywhere who wanted to learn more about us. And we would go and we would tell a story about our own experience of being gay or trans or whatever. And then we would take questions from the audience. And they could ask anything they wanted, and we promised not to be offended. We promised to tell them if they said anything that, w- that would usually be considered offensive, but we promised not to be offended ourselves. And we promised to try and answer. We didn't promise to answer every question, but we promised to try and answer honestly the ones we felt like we could answer. And it was a very sort of gentle, kind non-threatening way to introduce people to thinking about the lives of people who are not like them. And it worked incredibly well. Like, And I was really affected by that. It, I have a bias, I guess, in my own work towards wanting to create spaces like that where people are able to ask those difficult questions that they don't know that they should ask because they think maybe it's a racist question, or maybe it's a sexist question, or maybe it's a homophobic question. And you give them the space to ask the question. You reduce the level of anxiety and fear in the space so that learning can happen and people can feel valued and people can feel appreciated. And, and so, like, as soon as you say that, I go like,
0: wow, I can really see that working with, like, taking a bunch of, you know, LGBTQ folk around to answer those questions that way. Um, when I transpose it to St. Louis and in the aftermath of Ferguson… Like, I'm trying to imagine that room, like the same methodology working as well. And it sort of feels like, gosh, that would be sure, that would be
1: loaded as heck. Yes. And it was loaded. But people did do this work, that sort of work. I mean, one of the most powerful events that we hosted at the Ethical Society was an event called Mother to Mother. And it was an event where black mothers talked about the experience of raising black sons. And they simply shared stories from their own lives about things that they had thought or had happened to them or had happened to their children, the sorts of conversations they had to their kids after they, you know, one uh, I remember was talking about her 12-year-old son being stopped by police on the way home from school for no appreciable reason and him trying to ask her why that would happen and whether it would always be that way. And her having to tell him that yes, it would probably always be that way, and those the sharing of those sorts of stories was profoundly powerful to many people. There were many white people who went to the event and said things like, "I never knew that that happened to black people." You know, I just never had any idea that that was what they were experiencing uh, there I, I should also say there were many other events that were happening that were nothing like that. There was a lot of str- shutting down streets and um, oh sure going yeah. into politicians offices and hanging on down banners at the at the symphony and things like that and those also were essential. I'm not by in any means saying that people shouldn't do that and I did a lot of that as well. but talking about what a congregation like the ethical society can do, which it's particularly good at, I think, when we're doing our job well, it is bringing people together with an assumption of goodwill on all sides to say, we are going to try as hard as we can to respect everybody's dignity while we're in this space and try and appreciate each other as human beings and work through this stuff together. I think that that's where we can make a unique contribution because we're so, a space so, where people can come who don't necessarily believe in God, who are not necessarily religious, who wouldn't want to do that conversation within a theistic context, but might come to us to do it without any mention of God or religion.
0: Yeah, gosh, and boy, you know, if there's if there's anything that confused, you know, when I was in the church, if there was anything that confused and, and was problematic, and the, the whole God, all the God language and... You know the belief that God acts and that some things that are happening in the world are actually under His control, like that, really confuses the hell out of the race conversation. I feel like I feel like in some ways as humanists, we have a little bit of a better angle to come at this and sort of go like, "Look, this is a human problem." You know, um, there's you know, there's nothing, there's nobody going to fix it but us. Like you know, let's there's a there's a realism to that. But here's my question. Here, here's what I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, as I go like the danger of a conversation like this, is like we can, you know, bring people together and have conversations like, okay, it's 2018. You're a leader of a congregation that I'm guessing skews fairly older. Right?
1: Yes. Although we are having increasing numbers of young people come too. That's because you're charming and dazzling. But well, I try to be.
0: Um, and then and then I'm guessing it's largely white. Yes, and, and and so okay. So so here's my question: Is 2018? You sort of go like we're uniquely positioned to have a conversation in which goodwill is assumed. Like, what are you and your people doing on a regular basis? Like, is like have you trained people to have a certain kind of conversation over the Thanksgiving table? Like, do you have people like? going door to door? Are you sponsoring forums? Like, what are you guys doing to change the racial temperature or the racial atmosphere in St. Louis? Like what, what, I mean, it may, it may, you know, you know, you sort of go like, I'm not holding you responsible for the whole city, but like, I go like, what's your bit? Like, what are you guys trying to contribute in that,
1: in that moment? so there's a, a lot of ways that we try and contribute to that and obviously we don't I don't want to overstate our significance because we're one congregation and we have limited resources and limited reach but the things that we're doing to try and improve the conversation around race in St. Louis and to improve people's understanding of racial injustice in St. Louis because I want to be really clear we are we explicitly recognize that we live in a racist society and it's our responsibility to change that. We are not, when I say we want to get people together to have conversations, the conversations don't include, oh, is it really racist or is it maybe not racist? <laughs> uh, we, our conversations are more like, how can we understand the racism of our society and do something about it? And so here's some things that we we do. We have an end racism team, which is a subset of the congregation who is responsible for planning events which are supposed to do exactly what you say. They're supposed to try and contribute something to people's understanding of racism or improve the quality of the conversation around race in St. Louis. And they do things like um, they host discussions over documentaries. So we will show a documentary about race in St. Louis, and then we will have a discussion about it. That's the sort of thing we might do. They hold discussions over books. So recently they did a discussion about the book, White Fragility, and discuss the concept of white fragility in a facilitated way. And we had a lot of people come to that event. It was so many, we couldn't fit them in the the room that we had set aside. So we had to branch out and have two different rooms. So it was quite a lot of people coming to these things. We have local experts who come in to talk about the impact of racism on the community. So for instance, we had twice- Someone come in who is an expert in the history of redlining and how different areas of the city were encouraged to become racially homogenous by various subtle means so that people, uh, basically black people, were not able to, either not explicitly allowed to buy property in certain parts of the city, or after that, more subtly discouraged. And we ran that presentation twice because it, it again, it overflowed its room the first time. We weren't able to get any more people in, so we we had him come back and do that again. We invite prominent activists of color to come and speak to the congregation on Sunday mornings, you know, from our platform, and we're really committed to inviting as many as we possibly can to talk about not just these issues, but any other issue that they're experts in, because one of the ways that racism functions is the kind of assumption that white people are the natural authorities and we want to challenge that by having as many people of color speak from our platform as possible on all sorts of issues and i also feel like the leadership of the community has a responsibility i try and make racial justice a explicit ac- uh, aspect of every time i do a public speech in st louis so for instance recently I was asked to provide the invocation at the beginning of the meeting of the St. Louis City Board of Aldermen, which is I think certainly the first time a humanist has ever done that in this city. And I made it about, or at least the story I told at the start was about racial justice. It's about some of my experiences in St. Louis. So I tried to consciously Go back to that issue again and again, and there are probably members of my congregation who are sick of hearing about it because we we pro- they probably think we talk about it too much, but one of the things that I think is to kind of keep it on people's minds well, you know and th- this is exactly what I'm thinking about because you know
0: I, ever since I got into the secular movement, whenever I get invited to speak in a meeting, almost always you're talking to people that are already convinced of whatever it is that you're trying to say to them feels like. Um, and I find myself thinking, yeah, and maybe it's it's the old evangelical Christian in me that's always sort of like, yeah, but how do we get to those people that are not having this conversation, that are not thinking about this? And, you know, like we it, we you can sponsor a wonderful event and it's filled to the gills, but like the weird thing is is that while it's great to educate those people, like by definition, they're signing up to be educated. So yes. like there's some baseline there. And you know, like, and I'm just thinking out loud here. Like, I don't know what you think of this, but like at that, at that um, secular student alliance thing that you and I, or sec, yeah, secular student alliance thing that you and I were at this summer in Columbus. Yes. There were some people there from the street epistemology gang. hmm And as a result of that, I ended up, getting in touch with and becoming pretty good friends with Anthony Magna Bosco, who's the, you know, kind of one of the lead, lead dogs on that, on that sled team. And when I watch what those guys do, what's most interesting to me is that they found a winsome way of engaging somebody in a conversation about, um, kind of beliefs about closely held beliefs that the person, when they woke up this morning, they were like, they didn't sign up to have a conversation about closely held beliefs. They weren't planning on it. Right. But a lot of times by the end of the conversation, they're like, gee, this was great. you really, I wasn't, you got me thinking this. I'm wow. I'm going to, I'm going to meditate on this. And I sort of wonder if, if people like us, like we, we need, like like a congregation like yours, like what would it look like if instead of going out there like to get people asking like, what's your closely held belief about God or something like that? And it, it feels like if we stopped people and said like, hey, I, I'm just wondering like, could you tell me one sort of closely held belief you have about race in America? And then just sort of ask the same questions that they ask like. Where did you get that belief? Why do you think it works that way? Like, is there anything that could change your mind about that belief? Like, I just sort of feel like we've got to get better at getting the people that do not sign up for the racial conversation talking. and and, But not necessarily in a hostile way, just in a way that goes like, I'm curious what you think and I'm wondering where you got that and why you think that. And you go like, how much do you trust the
1: source of the knowledge that you're operating off of. I think that I would be really interested to see people try and do that. I do think that the strategies that the street epistemology people use, the particular questions that they ask and the mode in which they enter the conversation are likely to be very effective for getting people thinking about a lot of things. I think that they follow some pretty well-established psychological principles about how to get people to think about things and even change their minds, and I like that aspect of that work a lot. There's I a fight coming here. Uh, there is an, uh, definitely an at the same time, <laughs> which is that <laughs> um, I think that honestly, and this is going to be a weird thing to say, but there's almost more at stake. I think there's definitely more at stake when we talk about questions of race than when we talk about the existence of God. I do too. And it's a kind of a weird thing to say, but Yeah, I do too. Honestly, the for white people it's a whole set of social, legal, economic, educational, etc. privileges which are bound up in having honest discussions about race. For people of color it's obviously the disadvantages in all those areas that they are subject to. And for everybody, it's a big aspect of people's political identity, which is, I suppose, also true about people's belief about about God. But I wonder whether it would be quite so easy. And I'm not saying that it is easy in an absolute sense to, to engage people friendly. in discussion about God. But yes, and also whether that's even desirable. I mean, I, I do. I think that I've been very affected by. Many of the black activists who I've learned from since the Ferguson uprising happened and just been struck by the urgency they rightly feel about this. This is really life and death for black people in America. If they genuinely I, I, feel I, like whenever they get pulled over, they could die, that this is not something that leads itself to polite conversations on the side of the street very easily. It may be nice. And yet, I, see, and yet, I, I like like, I
0: get with you on the emotional thing, but like, and yet polite conversations on the street or polite conversations, period. Like, you know, I know people are like, we don't have time for that. Like, I'm enraged. Like, I like, you know, it's, we've been going. and I go like, how's that rage strategy working for you? Like, like, how's that going so far? Because, you know, it feels to me like turning up the volume on, on the visceral anger, it definitely brought the issue into the Public eye, but I feel like it's taken us backwards. Like, and I, you go like, oh, you know, you're such a sellout. You know, that slow, quiet, like, let's try to influence people one at a time, and like, like we need to, we need to make demands. We don't want it, We don't want to be talking to people in this kind of like mamby pamby way. And I go like, you know what? I don't think. I don't think that strategy that the, the conversation strategy has been tried and found wanting. I don't think it's, I, I think it's been found difficult and left untried. I don't think I don't think people have tried to engage people in conversation about race the same way that they've engaged people in conversation about God in this country.
1: I don't know about that. I genuinely don't know the answer to that question. I do think that activists have a responsibility to do what works. And where we have good evidence that one strategy works and another one doesn't for achieving the same goals, I think we have a, a strong ethical responsibility to change our strategies. And I Ferguson do. in
0: 2014. Right now, like, have you seen anything that you would say has worked?
1: Yeah, they changed a huge amount. I mean, an enormous amount has changed on a local level that had been in place for literally decades before, and it and was what was never, the strategy that worked? never tested? Oh, the, the the massive disruption of everyday life over many months. It certainly worked. The economic disruption, the political disruption. I mean we were going through periods where we were shutting down malls on weekends so they couldn't sell anything. And that really made them take notice. They really were not able to continue their business or people weren't able to get to work when people that stuff really does work. It did work. Okay, I mean, so it's, what? It's,
0: so so now, tell me, like, what's different now than was different than, than when you first showed up? There? Well, it's what, a, what you it's a long changed? list.
1: Uh, they, they've made a huge set of sweeping legal changes, which did away with a whole regime of basically debt slavery, which people of color were experiencing in the suburbs of St. Louis, whereby people would be get a parking ticket and be unable to pay the parking ticket, and so be fine right. more money, right? So, so that whole system has been significantly reformed since this happened. Um, we've elected uh, many different people to different local offices in the city and the state level. In fact, we just elected a new um, attorney general for the state who is a, an activist, and that happened partly because of all the agitation that's been going on. Um, There have been significant interest of the Justice Department in the Ferguson police force, in the St. Louis police force. There's even recently been four indictments of police officers for brutality in the course of a protest. Um, There was the whole Department of Justice report on policing in St. Louis, which that they, had to, they were subject to a consent decree that required them to do things differently. So there's actually been quite a lot of local change. And one of the things that happens, I think, in the national narrative about this is that people tend to think that kind of nothing has really changed. But on a local level, those protests achieve a lot. And in terms of the changing political discourse... It was not until young people started taking to the streets every time a police officer shot a person of color dead that most people were even aware that police were shooting so many unarmed people of color. Like Those people were being killed before these protests happened. It's just most people didn't know that they were being killed. And Now, any time in any city in America and in many other cities across the world, because it's happening in the UK too and other places as well, any time a police officer kills an unarmed people of color, you know there are going to be major protests on the streets. That is a major difference. It puts every police force in the country on notice that they cannot continue to do that and we have no way of quantifying how many lives that has already saved so i think the protests have been enormously successful it made race a major topic of conversation in the in the presidential election now i think you and i probably yeah, yeah, both that, agree that, that, that
0: I, I was with you right up until there and then you say like it made it it, it did make it a com- topic of conversation but not in a way that was particularly helpful
1: Well, I think that the challenge was that we didn't have a candidate who was able to translate the progressive version of that narrative into an election victory because um, Hillary Clinton was seen as too not radical and Bernie was seen as clueless on race. And so there wasn't a racially savvy progressive candidate. And so that, that Energy had nowhere to go on the progressive side, whereas there was a racist demagogue who was willing to pick up the energy on the other side. But I, I think that it will have long-lasting repercussions on the culture of the United States. And I think of when you see, when you look at things like how Teen Vogue is covering issues of race now, or the release of films like Black Panther and the focus increasingly on racial diversity in movies and um, in video games and all those aspects of culture. We're seeing a sea change in American culture about race. And I don't think we've seen the fruits of that yet, but we will. Like when culture changes, politics has to follow. And I think that we are actually winning the culture. The activists are winning uh, what I would get, I guess I would call, I'm not sure whether it's exactly mainstream US culture, but they are winning like major cultural battles right now. And I am not I, it's funny because i
0: am I am not so sure of this. I am like what i I am sure of is is the activists are winning they're 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 creating a much higher degree of consciousness and commitment on the part of people on progressive people. and I'm also sure. That the backlash in on the part of people that are afraid of losing privilege or or, or opportunity that that's much higher than ever. So I mean, like I, I can definitely see the temperature rising on both ends. Whether or not this conversation is actually pulling people in the middle, I I, I haven't seen the evidence of that. Like And that was when, when I think about the gay rights struggle, that was the majesty. And that was the big moment. The big moment wasn't that so many people got out there and marched. It was that like aunt Sally and uncle Joe around their television set were like, you know, I like that Ellen DeGeneres, you know, maybe we just need to let, you know, let people live and let live. And, you know, it was the, when they, it was when that, it was when that, that sort of like squishy middle started to shift that i was like oh now now we're getting somewhere and and then it seemed to go very fast and so what i'm worried about is like and and so i i think what you just said helped me because i've been thinking a lot about how we how we equip people to have conversations in the middle and in some ways i've been saying like you know those those angry strident protest conversations on the left aren't helping. And and I, I think I'm now much more of like, it's not an either or, but rather a both. And
1: yeah, I think that's but the I most don't think, important thing. Yeah. But the, I
0: don't think the protest thing is going to get it done unless we find a way to engage people in the middle in a conversation that is much less polemic
1: and much more personal. I think, you're right in the sense that it has to be both, and I think that, you know, I, I've tried in my career as an activist, such as it is, to to do both, to get good at and comfortable with both, because you know I, I should stress that my personal part in all this has been very minor, and it's mainly, I hope, been kind of responding to the call of Black leaders to do whatever they say. They think is going to going to work. And I'm certainly not a leader in this work and certainly not the best person to talk about it. But I mean, basically what we're discussing is how do you make widespread social change when some groups are oppressed by the status quo and other people are benefiting from the status quo and don't want to lose their benefits. And And some people say, well, you have to convince the people on the top to give up some of what they have. And some people say you have to force them to give up what they have because you're never going to convince them, because why would anyone willfully give up power and privileges that they enjoy? And my feeling is that you can do both. There are some people who will be convinced that the world you want to create is better than the world they're currently living in, even if it means a loss of power and privilege for them. But there's a hell of a lot of people who will not be convinced, and also, you have to make a calculation as to how long you want this to take. Because I think that without a civil war, it would have taken a very long time to get rid of slavery. We may still have it. So I don't think that it's a kind of comfortable position to believe that we can reason our way out of this. But I don't really believe that anymore. I think that minorities understand they need to come together and exercise the power that they have and that's exactly what was happening when martin luther king was around and doing his stuff they were exercising their power through you know economic means and boycotts and civil disobedience and all that sort of stuff too so we get, we can't get too kind of a
0: no, they were. But it, like, history. I also know a lot of people who were around at that time, and there was also a lot of grassroots work that had to do with trying to gently persuade those who were gently persuadable, yeah. and trying to and trying to force the conversation out into the open with people that were like were not militant, but were also not engaged, and so like, I, I you know I, I'm very like I'm I'm I, I don't think we're arguing. I think like we're saying I'm with you on this. it it was helpful for me to hear you talk about all the local impact of all that protesting. Because I think sometimes when you're in LA or when you're in you know Philadelphia or somewhere else, you get the impression like, ah, that was all that protesting and then it stopped. And you don't have a sense of that a lot of stuff changed on the ground. Yeah. So, I I mean, I think that's really, that's brilliant. Um, But I'm also convinced that we need this other
1: thing happening too. Yeah, I'm convinced of that as well, and that's one of the reasons why I try and make the ethical society of St. Louis a place where people can have those conversations. And sometimes there are activists in my community who are not so happy about that. They do not re- they they think I think that we are kind of coddling some white people, and that we don't need to do that, and we should be more robust and say, well, if you think that you're a racist, and move on and and I think it requires a certain clarity of purpose and a certain determination to say, no, we're a place which respects everybody's dignity. That's what's special about this place. We're going to have a certain type of conversation about everything that's happening in St. Louis here. and That means that, yes, we are going to try and find some way to both uphold the dignity of people of color who are currently oppressed and uphold the dignity of the racist cop as well and what does that actually mean what are our responsibilities there and how can we fulfill them both and that's really difficult yeah this is i mean like to me i i
0: knew when, i knew when i started to talk with you i was like there's this thing i want to know about and that's like how you as a humanist leader and as a congregational leader are engaging around a very like a very significant local issue um and i like i feel like you've like i feel like you've really answered the question well and in some ways it's challenging to me as i like i'm sort of trying to figure out like what it means to be a congregational leader myself um in this way um it's it's been really it's been really helpful for me to hear you talk about like that the tension between those two things um yeah Like I'm, I'm, I mean, I guess that's my way of saying I'm really grateful for your perspective. And I think more than anything, I'm just really grateful that you're there, you know, sort of, I don't know if the word pioneering is the right word, but sort of, you know, you're, you're kind, you know, the ethical society is one of the only longstanding humanist organizations out there that does this local stuff. um. It's, it's probably the longest standing and I just really appreciate the way that you're sort of investing it with some new energy um and and bringing it into some new conversations but still respecting the history of the whole thing
1: thanks Paul I appreciate that yeah
0: listen man I, I, you know what you need to do you need to you need to get you need to plan your wedding bro Yes, I do. I need to get back to that. I've got-
1: You need to I get think, back to
0: planning your wedding. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely like totally excited for you. I know you're not going
1: to have a lot of people there, but I hope you're going to have somebody taking some pictures. Yes, we do have a photographer. The photographer is one professional that we have engaged. And I have a very good friend who's a, actually a Christian clergy person in town who we got to know each other through the Ferguson-related protests. And she's a wonderful, joyous- really cool person and she's going to be doing the ceremony and i can't i just really love that and it's a a great reflection of the sort of relationships that can develop between people when you are doing this sort of justice work together sometimes in pretty tense situations so i'm really looking forward to that that's beautiful that's
0: beautiful man thanks bart i appreciate it all right man talk to you soon All right, so that was me and James Croft talking. you want to find out more about James, it's easy to do. He's all over the internet. You can find him at the uh, Ethical Society of St. Louis. Um, If you're in St. Louis, you should go visit the Ethical Society of St. Louis. I'm going to try to get there this year. Um, It's one of those uh, things on my sort of humanist bucket list. I want to to visit one of those ethical societies. And James is not only the closest, but he's the guy I like. Um, so yeah, you can find out all about James, more about him, at, at there. Now, now I promised you a song, and and it's this song by Eric Bachman called "Mercy," and a friend of mine sent it to me, and he felt like it reflected the spirit of the show, and to tell you the truth, I I I don't think he could have been more right. I I think if you listen to this song, you'll you'll see why I want you to hear it. And I hope you enjoy it. And we're just going to play out on it. I'll see you next time on Humanize Me.
2: That you need Like we're all you dare believe them when they try to tell Don't you dare believe them When they try to tell
3: on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at humanize me pod on Twitter and humanize me podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search humanize me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media.
2: Hey, you could be larger than life.